Hey, this episode of Data Nonce is brought to you by IT Pro TV. They're the resource to keep you and your IT team skills up to date. Visit itpro.tv slash datanauts and use code datanauts30 to get a free seven-day trial and 30% off a monthly membership for the lifetime of your active subscription. If you Google for a definition of high-performance computing, you'll find several entries on several sites that can be condensed down to this. High-performance computing describes the use of supercomputers or parallel processing algorithms to solve computationally intensive problems. Today on the Data Nuts podcast, we're going to pick the brains of a person who has worked in high-performance computing environments. We're especially interested in distributed computing aspects of HPC and the challenges it presents to the infrastructure engineering community, of which you are one. At PacketPushers.net, you can find this in all of our Datanaut shows about infrastructure engineering, or just search for Datanauts, spelled like astronauts, in your favorite podcatcher. You can follow us at Datanauts underscore show. I am Ethan Banks at EC Banks. Chris Wall is overly distributed this week, finding himself in front of a live audience on a plane, holding a team meeting, working in his lab, writing a blog post, and relaxing at home all at the same time. The man is just out of threads for now, but fear not. He'll be back next week with another CPU Core Online and Drew Conry Murray is with us this week to uh, take the venerable Mr. Wall's place. Thanks for joining us, Drew. Not that Chris could ever be replaced. <laughs> that is that is very fair. <laughs> Nick Baraglio is our guest and he talked to us about HPC, uh, distributed computing a bit, networking, and and so on involved in high performance computing environments. Nick, just real quickly, who are you and what do you do? Uh, my name is Nick Baraglio, um, network architect slash engineer for a large research-focused service provider-style carrier network. Connects a lot of national labs together and other high-performance computing centers and things like that. All right. So let's jump into this because uh, you popped up on my radar. We were talking in Slack about some of the HPC work that you've done, and, uh, and we thought that this would make an interesting show. You mentioned kind of a service provider that connects a lot of different HPC organizations together. Can you talk about that a bit? I'm not sure how much is public and not, but whatever you can share that would help set context would be great. Oh, absolutely. And probably a little more background about my history with HPC would be useful as well. In a previous life, I worked for the uh, National Center for Supercomputing Applications. Uh, I started there in maybe 2002 and worked at the University of Illinois in research networking capacity one way or another until 2013 when I went to work for Energy Sciences Network, which is, it's basically, it's the service provider network for the U.S. Department of Energy. So we connect the national labs together. Anyone that's interested in looking at our footprint and our throughput and things like that, all of it's publicly available on uh, mymy.es.net. You can get a, a topology of our international footprint there and look at interface statistics and things like that. So you're working for the service that connects a bunch of HPC environments together. Could you maybe give an example of one of the HPC environments that you're supporting and maybe like the, the kind of science or math problems that, that drive those environments? Sure. I can give a, a, an overview of one of the largest consumers of bandwidth on our network, which is the high energy physics community. A lot of the big iron, you know, the HPC systems are built to do a handful of things, one of which is crunching of physics, high energy physics data to do things like discover the Higgs boson particle and other cool stuff like that that's way above my intelligence level. We have a point of presence at CERN in Europe, and we transit the data sets that they generate to national labs that exist in New York and all, actually all over the country that then have both uh, high-performance systems there and then also they distribute to a tiered system of HPC resources that exist in like research universities and places of that sort. Moving around these large data sets is non-trivial, as you can probably imagine. And if you're talking about one of these, is there sort of a typical example of... Um high-performance environment, you know, in terms of the computing nodes that are going to be in one of these places examining this data that they're generating from something like CERN? So a lot of them will be purpose-built for whatever they are they're trying to do. They also have general HPC resources as well. Uh, an example of one that I can, that you know, that I can talk about was the last one that I worked on when I was at NCSA, which was the first petascale system. I think it was the first petascale system, period. I know it was the first one in the U.S. Uh, it was called Blue Waters. And it had uh, 26,700 nodes, I believe. 
Mm-hmm. And its connectivity was, uh, I believe, 128 by 40 gig. That was then back-ended to some pretty serious WAN connectivity as well, you know, in by 100 gig WAN. So you said 26,000 plus nodes, as in this is a, a piece of metal, a compute node that's actually doing work in the, you know, solving math problems and so on. Correct. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So what, what kind of software were they using to distribute the workload across all those nodes? Most of that was custom written, purpose built for whatever they were trying to do with it. So a big portion of that cluster was GPU based. So, and it was kind of early for that, for that type of work. So some of the pioneering GPU software and stuff was written for that. So to, more typically with some of the other environments, then do they, do they all tend to run their own custom or is there a, a software that you tend to see out there that is uh, doing the workload distribution? Yeah, there's some commercial packages you can get, or they may be provided by the, the manufacturer of the cluster. Like for example, SGI has their own stuff for distribution of workloads. At NCSA, we were the very first HPC cluster that Dell ever built. So we basically helped them to pioneer their HPC vertical for the most part. And that was mostly stuff that was written for that particular cluster in-house. It had the MPI, the message passing interface, you know, that the nodes communicate over, which is an air-gapped, I don't want to call it a network, but it sort of is. It's not a network in the way that we think, you know, that like a data networking guy is going to think of networks, but it's a fabric that is specifically in place for message passing between the nodes. And then, you know, it has a front end that is then typically Ethernet. So you've got a core switch, which at that, on that particular cluster was a very densely populated Force 10 box back when Force 10 was still Force 10 and not Dell. We're talking, this is probably like 2005, maybe 2006. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, in by 192 gig port line cards in it, they had those special connectors on them with those big fat cables that were no fun to move around. That was how the data was moved across the nodes. But then on the back end of that was the MPI, which allowed the nodes to all communicate with each other. And then on the front of the, I I call it the front as if you can see it. Uh, you know, the, the front network, so that the, the data transit network is front-ended by a head node or a series of head nodes. That's where scientists would go log in, move their data onto the head node if they're able to, and then issue all of their commands from there that then distributes the load across the nodes. So it, it feels a little different than like a container orchestration package that will stand up a container running a particular job in a, you know, in a cloud native style environment where you're spinning up containers across nodes to meet the workload requirement for one particular function. This feels more like, well, we've got this big problem and we got to spread this, the work of the same problem across nodes versus multiple instances of of an application being distributed in a container across nodes. Am I making a reasonable distinction? I'm not sure if you ever got into it that deep on that end, but. No, that, that, that's exactly right. So this extrapolates out into the wide area network as well. So you've got a single problem or a series of sub problems that need to be solved in a coordinated manner. Whereas in, you know, a typical container or server farm that's serving out, you know, web pages or what, you know, it's some web app for example, right? In my experience, that's going to be load-based, right? So if you need more of the same thing, I just spin up more of these containers that add, you know, extra resources for consumption. Whereas in an HPC environment, it's typically, in my experience, has been, I have, like you said, a a big problem that I need to solve that may be able to be broken into sub-problems, but they're all related and they all need to be coordinated together. A good example, I think, of, of how this translates. So say you've got your application server farm. That's a typical container style. You know, my, my, my iPhone app is going to talk to this thing, right? When the resources aren't needed anymore, they can turn them down, right? And they'll very likely be orchestrated in such a way where they just get turned down automatically once they're not in use any longer. And then you can say, go and decommission a, a rack to do upgrades on it or whatever. But if you want to upgrade any part of the cluster, you have to do what's called draining the queue, which means you have to let all the jobs finish that are currently running. And you can't touch any of it 
until all the queue is drained. So that would be like the job queue. Uh, it operates much more like a single entity than a whole bunch of things together. I always thought of it like a school of fish, right? The school of fish all kind of move around in the same way, go uh, the same directions, yeah. but they're all autonomous. So on a typical system, do you have a sense of what the utilization is like? Are these things running all 26,000 nodes 24-7 or are there peaks and valleys? Yeah, it depends on what the jobs are, right? So you can do reservations of subsets of the resources. So say I only need like 10,000 nodes instead of 26,000 nodes. I can just say, I want to reserve 10,000 nodes. Doesn't matter which ones they are, right? And so it's it's almost like a QoS mechanism where I say, these are my reserved resources. I'm going to run my jobs on this subsection of the cluster while you know these 10 other users can use whatever's left they can make reservations on the other pieces of it. The reservation system is a serious part of uh, HPC uh, coordination and, and function. Yeah, I was going to say, there must be some kind of mix of both automated scheduling and also maybe like sort of hierarchy in an organization. Who gets to take 10,000 nodes versus and leave the rest for everybody else and how that Absolutely. all gets worked out must be very, very tricky. Yes, that is a huge part of it. When one of these organizations builds out their HPC environment, do they share available time with other institutions that may want to use their clusters to do problem solving? So in an academic environment, yeah, that's really that's really common, especially if it's a publicly funded resource. So say I go, I'm working at, you know, random.edu and I write a the National Science Foundation does a grant solicitation for, you know, some HPC thing they want done. You know, I write a response to that. I get funded, but like I don't, I may not have all of the expertise that they're asking for. So I partner with university, you know, random two, and we partner together in a, what they call a consortium. And one of them hosts the HPC resources, but everybody has equal access to it because they're providing the expertise that was necessary to win the the award. Essentially, that's that's really common. You can also do things like really common thing is a lot of smaller schools that don't have, you know, they're not writing grant proposals. You know, they're not an R1 school, so they don't have a huge data center to put a cluster in. They don't have people to run it. You can buy cycles or you can be gifted cycles based on any number of things. So, you know, small school X wants to run some, you know, whatever job on it. You know, they want to do some genomics research or something and it's a it's a general purpose cluster they can be gifted cycles so they have like this amount of time and these amount of cpu cores that they can use to do whatever they need to do but they're not affiliated at all with whoever owns that cluster that sounds like it gets a lot of time as opposed to doing genomics research in the public cloud yeah i mean so a lot of the things that the clusters are built for are things that you can't typically get yeah, you know, historically, you couldn't get these things in any type of commercial offering. Like you, you wouldn't be able to get access to a thousand GPUs or something. And so they build their own, right? But now it's getting more and more common with things like cloud bursting. And I've done a little bit of work with Amazon and the Direct Connect stuff where you've got uh, random sites, IP space that Amazon is front ending. And then they have, you know, they provide access for research into you know their compute resources. Yeah, Amazon actually has a high performance computing offering up on their site. We can throw yep. a link to that in the show notes. Yep, we, we we helped with the very early versions of that. Google Compute is doing the same thing. Uh, I believe Azure is also uh, the big three. They're all doing it. There's a market for it because running a cluster is hard. Paying the power bill alone is hard. When, when <laughs> seriously, when when Blue Waters was built at NCSA, a huge portion of the grant money went towards upgrading the power state, the University of Illinois power station. Jeez. Yeah, I'm not surprised. And it's like it had to be built like they built a new building for the petascale system, like two blocks from the power station, <laughs> because of the requirements. <laughs> <laughs> thing that stuck out to me here was I had this idea that HPC was pretty similar to what a cloud-native container-style environment would be, where you're running several instances of containers, uh, just spinning them up on different nodes, and you know, Kubernetes takes care of that, and, and so on. 
But what Nick pointed out where, where I was incorrect here was this idea that really you've got a single problem being spread over over nodes. And it might be broken into sub-problems, but it's a different kind of a thing. It's like one process that's running spread out over all these CPUs as opposed to several instances of the same thing running over several different CPUs. So, uh, Drew, what stuck out to you? So thinking sort of also about the cloud, for the enterprise, the cloud, and even the own, the data center is positions as this kind of infinite resource where you don't have to worry so much about who's getting to do what. But with HPC, there's a kind of scarcity there, if not really scarcity, then at least a hierarchy about who gets to do what and when. And that's not something you really hear about in the enterprise. So there's a big difference there. Let's take a minute and talk about our sponsor today, IT Pro TV. You can polish your skills and advance your IT career by using their over 2,000 hours of on-demand training and more than 125 hours are added new each week. So say you're an individual. Okay, what do you get here? Well, as an IT Pro TV member, you're going to have the opportunity to access this huge online training library that helps you prepare for a, a whole bunch of certifications that can drive your career ahead. So, for example, they've got uh, CRISC, CISSP, CISM, CISA, and CEH. Also, stuff in the Cisco world, CompTIA, ISC2, Microsoft, VMware, Linux courses are out there and more. You can really ramp up your knowledge in a whole bunch of different IT knowledge domains. But let's say you're part of a team. Well, what then? IT Pro TV also caters to teams. Imagine everybody that's in the group that you're in, trained and ready to fight off the latest security threat or whatever it is that is on your plate these days. Well, IT Pro TV makes that really easy via that team solution. When you do the team solution, you get group pricing and then access to the IT Pro TV supervisor portal. You gain, therefore, full control over your team's training schedule. You can create custom groups and training assignments and see individual and group analytics. In other words, you can set up what everybody's going to be working on for their training and then see how they're doing as they progress. And you don't have to send them off-site for training. You don't have to book people on planes, book hotel, that extra expense, the time out of the office. You can keep them in the office and just schedule time for them during their regularly scheduled workdays to get the training done. No matter who you are, individual or a team person taking training from IT Pro TV, you can get at their content via all kinds of ways. So first of all, they've got a live channel where you can watch the training happening in real time. Or you can watch on demand the recorded sessions. And then second of all, you can stream via Chromecast or Roku, Amazon Fire TV, Apple TV, or just on your regular desktop workstation. Use the iOS app. Use the Android app. In other words, they made it super easy to get at the content no matter what your method is for consuming it. Okay, you interested in this? Well, then go to itpro.tv slash datanauts and use the code datanauts30 to try it free for seven days and receive 30% off of your monthly membership for the lifetime of your active subscription. To learn more about IT Pro TV's team solution, sign up for a free demo of the supervisor portal. That's itpro.tv slash datanauts and use code datanauts30. So, Nick, when working in an HPC environment, and I, I, we were talking about the problem and the way it's distributed across nodes, do, do you typically send a problem across like a pod, you know, where there's a group of nodes, or is it like the whole environment might get this problem to solve? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> okay. <laughs> so it depends on how the, the clusters are architected, right? So some of the ones that I've worked on have been modular clusters where you've got, you know, a subcluster or like say you've got four subclusters and four head nodes and then a master head node. And so you can say, I want to distribute this over just, just two of the modules, right? Just two of the sub uh, containers, I guess, which would be in a series of rows of racks or I want the whole thing, right? Or, or you can get even more complicated. One of the original HPC projects I was funded on was called TerraGrid. And this was, we built out, in by OC192 across the country in like 2003. So we had N by 10 gig distributing this large set of hierarchical clusters <laughs> across the country at different supercomputing centers. All right. So there was one at Argonne National Lab. There was one at NCSA. There was one at San Diego Supercomputing Center. There was one at Pittsburgh. I mean, they were all over the place. All the supercomputing centers had one, if I'm not mistaken. All those interconnected by WAN links that then were a hierarchy 
you know, they were essentially like connecting these subclusters that also had subclusters in them. So it was, it was a very cool design. Does that mean a job could run in one physical location like San Diego and also part of that job could run in Pittsburgh? Is that the idea? Sure. Yep. And in practice, it was harder to do than we thought it would be because moving these large data sets around is on a wide area, you know, on a long fat network in a wide area context, you know, that's an acquired skill. Uh, it's not like a whole bunch of 1500 byte packets that are going to port 80, you know, for my web requests. It's, I need to move around five terabytes of data and it's one file. Yeah. And you, you were talking about OC192 and the multiple OC192 links, which correct me if I'm wrong, that's roughly 10 gig uh, worth of pipe. Yeah. But you still got, you know, um, latency requirements if you're backhauling terabytes of data across country, even if you've got 10 gig to work with. So that's, geez. Yeah. So in, in that context, latency was less important because we didn't distribute the message passing interfaces. Those were all isolated to the subclusters. So it was essentially IP across the wide area for moving around data and signaling job stuff that was going on. But the moving around of the data proved to be incredibly difficult for a couple of reasons. One of the biggest reasons is that at the time, I'm not sure how familiar you are with a thing called grid FTP. That's how most science data, big files are moved around, like a data transfer node running grid FTP, and then it does parallel file streams. So is, is it FTP, but but again, uh, capitalizing on parallelism? Sort of. It's a, li- it's, a, it's, a little more, it's a little more than that. The FTP in there is sort of a misnomer. It's not actually that, but... I, I used to manage a commercial product that was a variation on that. It was all about keeping very large data sets in sync, you know, terabytes of data. And it was a variation on the FTP protocol that this company had custom written so that you could keep uh, essentially islands. It was sort of like uh, a CDN, but not really. That wasn't exactly how it was intended to work. It was really for inside of a, a commercial operation that had several different places that needed big chunks of data synced. And and parallel um, file streams is one of the ways it would overcome WAN latency and just you know keep the pipe full of data during sync operations. Yep, same concept, exact same concept. It's probably even based on they're probably based on the same stuff. But back then, when we had the TerraGrid, you know, ecosystem, that didn't exist. So people were using SCP to move data around, which. Anyone that's spent any amount of time with SCP will, and tried to move big, big pieces of data will immediately realize that, oh, it's got its own windowing mechanisms. Oh, also, it's got encryption overhead. And all of these things came into play where the scientists were expecting 30 gigabits per second, right? Even though the, most of the nodes are connected at one gig, they didn't make that jump. But they were expecting this blazingly fast, set the road on fire kind of speed. And they were getting like, 150 megabits per second, which, you know, that's not good. (laughs) So, so lots of work was done to sort of figure out what was going on with that. And, you know, we wrote some white papers about like removing the encryption from SCP. And actually that's an option. Now there's a package you can get that's essentially SCP with no overhead and some windowing goo in there. But that, that was a, that was a big problem for a long time. So considering the, the distribution of the problem, you can run working on the same problem in multiple places. Now we're talking about distributed computing, not just in a data center context, but geographically distributed. So partitioning has got to be a problem. There's got to be times when these environments lose touch with each other. And what happens in an HCP world when there is a partition? <laughs> it depends on the jobs. You know, It can be as catastrophic as the job has to start over again. Or you have to retransfer all the data and then start the job all over again. The the sync problem is uh, was a real issue. I have yet to see another system that was built this you know in that way. But you know overall it worked pretty well. It was constructed in such a way that the synchronization was typically it was engineered out of it out of the problem. So like this site may have this type of cluster that's better for this piece of the problem we're trying to solve and this site may have this type of hardware that's better for this piece. And so, you know, you kind of do sub jobs, I guess, is a, is a way to describe that. But if we are distributed and we map it back to cap theorem, it sounds like you have to have consistency in an HPC environment. And if you don't, at some point, 
then it's as ugly as, yep, scrap it. We got to start over again. Yeah. One of my old bosses used to say, when the network is partitioned, kittens die and I have a bad day. (laughs) (laughs) Another issue that I'm thinking about in an individual cluster, if a node goes down, is the system prepared to, is there any kind of failover or backup to take over for that node and what happens to the data that was there? Yeah. So just like everything I've said, you know, it depends, right? So (laughs) for the most part, you can survive a node failure and even, you know, multiple node failures. The queue will handle most of those things by moving the stuff around. It just has to start over whatever that node was doing. Mm -hmm. That's been my experience with it. And again, I didn't actually run the cluster. I just, I was the extra overlay. If something needed done, I got it done. But for the most part, I was building the networks and running the networks and making sure the networks worked. But from my understanding of that, the nodes were able to sort of, the nodes were more like, I guess, leafs, I guess, on a tree, you can lose one or two. And then mm-hmm. whatever okay. they were doing has to be distributed to somewhere else. It didn't necessarily kill the the job, okay. unless that particular job was only running on one node, which never really happened. You mentioned the network then. So let, let's talk about the network for a bit. Let's talk about inside, for example, the network that was connecting up 26,000 odd nodes. Was that Ethernet? Was that InfiniBand? Was the architecture Leaf Spine? Give us a sense of what that looked like. So that one was sort of an odd bird. Right in the middle of that one was a big extreme BD8 that had all you could eat 40 gig Ethernet. The pieces of that system were all, they were all connected via. So extreme networks BD8, as in, I don't know off the top of my head what that is. Sounds like a great big chassis. Yeah, it's a huge chassis, big purple chassis. Okay, and loaded up with 40 gig ports. Yep, and then that was eventually replaced maybe a year ago, year and a half ago. I still know the guys that work on that. They replaced it with a bigger Rista. So is Ethernet common as the interconnect within a cluster? Yeah, I mean, I've seen other stuff as well. Ethernet, by and large, is the most common for the data transfer interconnect, in my experience. We did see a pretty big uptick of InfiniBand back when Topspin was still a a company before Cisco bought them. And then I think during the deployment of our very first InfiniBand cluster, Cisco bought Topspin. So, you know, we had, uh, we had some IB stuff and then, you know, there's other clusters that had, you know, like big Mellanox switch in the middle of it. And then you get into oddities there where, because InfiniBand, you you can use that for all of it, right? You can use that for your message passing as well as your data transfer Mm -hmm. medium. Uh, So that's why it was really attractive because then you essentially only had two networks in your cluster. You had the InfiniBand network and then you had like the management network, which was, you know, like a hundred megabit or whatever happened to be on the management ports of the nodes, it was lower overhead. It was lower cost because you only had to buy one device. But then, you know, in the early days of that, there was no, um, there was no reliable InfiniBand to Ethernet gateways. Uh-huh. So you had to figure out a way to connect your InfiniBand cluster to the rest of the network, which was always Ethernet. And so the very first one we did, we actually built Linux boxes and put IB cards and 10 gig Ethernet cards in them. And those just became the head nodes. So on on the networks of today, it sounds like more typically Ethernet. And would you describe them as pretty simple and straightforward, like uh, a layer three network all the way, uh, maybe even all the way uh, routing all the way to the host, something like that? The ones that I've seen so far have been layer three to the switch core and then, you know, layer two to the subclusters or to the nodes. You may compartmentalize that uh, based on, you know, how big the cluster is and, you know, what kind of IP space you have available. And if you're going to do V6 only or something like that. But a layer two domain isolated to uh, a switch, not spread out all over the data center. Yeah. It's a layer two domain that's isolated to very likely a core switch and possibly a sub core switch. You may have a big core switch. That's all 40 gig. That's then connecting a bunch of one gig or 10 gig hosts that are then attached to a, a, another switch. Wait a minute. You did something just register with me here. So when you were talking about that extreme uh, networks, that very large chassis with the 40 gig uplinks, are, are you suggesting that that core switch wasn't just the middle of the network, that it was the network and all the nodes were hanging off of that monster? 
Sort of. Yeah. So the nodes, th these weren't nodes like you would typically describe. Like a, it's not like a server that's sitting in a rack. These were specialized SGI machines. So right. they okay. were, they were racks and racks and racks for all these cores. And so they didn't have like, there weren't 26,000 ethernet ports. I got it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, so the SGI machine maybe had its own internal switching or something like that, but, but it was treated as one big large block that needed to be plugged into the network. Yeah. There was a little bit of that style going on there. Got it. So it's not, it's not a cluster as one would typically describe a, if someone even said to me cluster, that wouldn't be what I think of. I would think of like 50 racks of a bunch of one U servers, right? That to me is a stereotypical cluster. Right. Yeah. Yeah. But the the uh, some of the some of the big iron stuff like that isn't that's not the architecture that they that they use. So you talked a little bit about the WAN earlier. Can you drill down a little bit more because that's you know something about high performance computing that I hadn't really considered as being an important part. But it sounds like it's essential and getting even more essential. Yeah, it's one of the things that most folks don't think about. You know, even the people that are building a lot of the HPC resources don't necessarily think about. The connectivity there. That's why when cloud started to become like a buzzwordy thing, I was like, nobody's going to think about the wide area networks. The first thing I thought of, because you can have this fantastic resource, right? That has all of these bells and whistles and it's shiny and rainbows come out of it. But how are you going to get your data in and out of it? Uh -huh. Right. right. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah. so, you know, when, when you talk about uh, an HPC cluster, you're typically talking about, you know, genomics data, high energy physics data, you know, uh, climate data, things that are, you know, very unique and probably extremely large in file size. And they're not easy to chunk up, right? Because it's contiguous data kind of thing. So if I have, you know, 10 petabytes of genomics data that I need to move from A to B, how am I going to do that? Right. Right. Am I, yeah. How am I going to, how am I going to do that over the commodity internet? The answer is you're not right. Or you're crazy. Or you are you don't expect it to be done before you die, <laughs> right? So you know the large MTUs all the way down to where whatever's consuming the data, the host data, straight through all the way to whatever is sourcing the data. Ten gig to an HPC shop, ten gig is like commodity, right? Ten gig is too not big enough. So all these data science locations, they have to essentially build out private networks if they want to get data up into these uh, HPC clusters. Yeah, I mean, that's our sole purpose, right? Here's one for you. It also has to be error-free. So <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> our, our, enti our entire backbone runs error-free. We don't accept circuits. I mean, we mostly have dark fiber, but it runs error-free. Because, you know, as soon as you get an error in there that's uncorrectable, you know, FEC isn't working and whatever other reason it's not a correctable error, your data set is off at that point. I mean, TCP fixes a lot of that, right? Because TCP was the thing that sort of made the internet work. But it was always able to fix around all the crappy stuff that was riding over. But, you know, there are times when it, you know, it just can't. And so, you know, one error and your petabyte of data is corrupt. Did, did you end up running like anything special on top of the network rather than just, you know, plug in really fat pipes and then special protocols of, across the top to push that data around? And, and in other words, being able to get the big data sets from point A to point B, did you also have to do some network engineering magic like uh, a quality of service or or make sure you never dropped a packet or, you know, fast convergence, any any bells and whistles you had to add to make that network support this kind of environment? Yeah, I mean, for the most part, what we what we've done, you know, for the entirety of my career after you know after being a broadband service provider guy, it all comes down to managing your network, right? Building a network is easy, but running a network is hard, and so making sure, being very diligent and I mean, vigilant about no errors on these interfaces, and keeping a very close eye on your instrumentation data all the time, and alerting when it deviates from whatever you think it should be is that's the biggest part of it right so there's eyes on our network 24 7 365 we don't really do a whole lot of qos per se because you know in, in this environment we are purpose-built to move science data around so we do reservations so we have a dynamic circuit system that says 
you know, if this lab wants to have a dedicated 27 gigabits per second from them to this other lab, go to this interface, build this, tell it the time you want it for, here's the bandwidth reservation, click go, and it builds a it builds a protected circuit across our backbone that's then reserved for them. And if they don't use it, it goes into the scavenger queue. But that's that's a very different thing than I've got eight different classes of traffic that I need to differentiate service levels between because they're all simultaneously on the pipe. You're actually you know, building a pipe, building a road that no one else can use. Yep. We don't do any so we, we have classes, but they're, you know, there's I think five classes or whatever, and scavenger being the bottom of the barrel. So anything that isn't in one of the upper classes goes into scavenger and it can be stolen. But we don't classify traffic like HTTP is more, you know, has more precedent than whatever other random protocols running at the time. We don't go, we don't go into that. We, we built like a carrier style network where for the duration of the reservation that you make, this Oscar circuit, which is Oscars is a system that, that builds this out. It, it reserves this pipe that is private to you. No one else can see in it. No one else cares what's in it. It's you move your garbage in, garbage out, whatever it is for the duration of time you've reserved it for, for the bandwidth you've reserved. And then when it's done, it automatically tears out. One thing that jumped out for me is how essential the WAN is to high-performance computing, and that's not really something I thought about. It's requiring some kind of special considerations, even up to having to build your own private networks to move these massive data sets. <laughs> yeah, the thing that um, uh, stuck out to me was I was thinking about CAP theorem as I've been researching distributed computing theory, and of course CAP theorem comes up a lot, which we've talked about in Data Knots before. And in the HPC world, consistency seems to be the one that matters the most. As soon as you have a partition, your data sets are no longer consistent. And as Nick put it, you, you know, in the worst case scenario, you're going to have to restart that problem all over again, which could be pretty painful because sometimes these jobs run a long time. Thinking back about to the, the clusters, when, when there's a bottleneck there, how are they identified in an HPC environment? So it depends on what you mean by bottleneck. Do you mean bottleneck in transfer of data or bottleneck in, you know, CPUs are pegged? Well, let's take both. Let's start with the transfer of data. Okay. So transfer of data is typically monitored pretty heavily from the network engineering side where, you know, like I said, we, we, we need to run error free. So there's eyes on the network all the time. If we see high percent utilization of a set of interfaces or a single interface, then that will probably alarm and then that goes into investigation, you know, triage mode to figure out what's why that's happening, mm-hmm. uh, which typically results in, you know, some automated NetFlow crunching and whatever else, you know, you do to make sure that, you know, it's legitimate and all those other things. From the cluster side, this is where it's kind of interesting to me. I've seen a, a bunch of different sets of this software, but there's software that monitors the the entire health of most clusters that I've worked on. And it goes and it'll tell you like, oh, this node in this rack has a bad hard drive or there's something, you know, it's generating uh, bad Ethernet frames or something like that. And, and it's a whole dashboard of the entire cluster. So, you know, if problems start to arise where, oh, these CPUs, so c- pegging the CPUs is, is actually not that abnormal, right? Because you want to use all the resources that you can. Right. But if you have issues where maybe things aren't draining correctly or whatever else, that's typically identified by the sort of proprietary cluster management software. Uh, And then the cluster admins go and figure out what's going on with that. But it's usually identified very quickly, if not by the software, but by the scientists going yelling at someone and saying it's not working. (laughs) But usually usually the software catches it first. So is that the HPC version of the boss running down into the IT department saying, why can't I get on the internet? Yeah, more or less. <laughs> Except for they're not as nice, usually. <laughs> <laughs> so Nick, let's let's focus on the network for a minute. Let's say we know that there's a network link that's congested. And I'm, I'm mostly curious about the data center side. I mean, if you know in the data center that some link is just getting hammered all the time, does that indicate a, there's a hardware upgrade? Guys, it's time we got to move from 10 to 40 or 40 to 100 or whatever it is. Or, or do you just like rebalance the workloads and try to even everything back out again? 
So rebalancing the workloads is always the first step, right? Because you never want to make a procurement if you don't need to. Because typically, on the data center side, it's a little bit less. But uh, you know, on the on the wide area side, a procurement is very expensive and may even entail like DWM transponders and things like that. So on the data center side, you know, you want to try to rebalance as best you can uh, if possible. And if not, it'll typically trigger an upgrade. So, you know, you've got your baseline. If baseline deviates towards congested for too long, then for a predetermined amount of time, you know, in your capacity management, then that triggers a, we need to make a purchase of uh, another line card or we need to add another interface and set up, you know, and set up uh, bonding or something. Yeah, but again, in these environments, because they are, I'm going to guess, in some cases, budget constrained. It sounds like in some cases, budget's like not a question. How much do you need? Why, yes, we have huge banks of money that can pay for this. But then in other cases, it's like, crap, you've got what you've got. Make it work. So usually every cluster is both of those at different times. In the beginning, it's you buy whatever you think you're going to need for however long you're going to think you need to have that cluster, right? So you typically have a budget that is pretty good for, you know, for procurement of anything you might need from, you know, Ethernet cables to redundant supervisor modules or more nodes or whatever. But then towards the end of the life cycle of any given HPC resource, typically that if it's grant funded, that grant has probably run out. There's no more money to make capital expenditures against. And you may not even have the funding for the operational people anymore. I've seen clusters that live on for like a, quite a while without a without funding to actually run them. I mean, somebody still does it, but you know, they, the, towards the end of the life cycles, it's very unlikely that you'll get you know money to do upgrades on any particular cluster. In my experience, and, and that's just the nature of grants, right? That's so, we call it soft money in the R and E. Yeah, I, even at the, the state government level in uh, in the U.S., I worked for uh, the state of New Hampshire for many years, and grants were always like, really, we got grant money? And everybody gets very excited. What can we buy? And what can we possibly stretch to match the definition of this grant and solve perhaps some other problems and, and so on? Because it was wonderful to have it. But then that money was gone. And so, right, you, we would buy, in that case, as much as we could – knowing that that money was a temporary thing and it was going to run out. So we would do as, as much infrastructure improvements as we could with those funds, you know, within the confines of the grant, you know, we, we do the best right. we could with, uh, with what it was to, to get beyond the grant if we could, but you know, you had always had to prove that uh, this purchase is going for something that solves what is identified in this, you know, what the grant is, uh, is supposedly for. Right. And so that's a, that's a really good point that you made there. And to sort of follow on to what I was saying, you know, by the time the grant has ended or is, you know, is nearing its, its sunset, in theory, the problem that that grant was funded to solve should be done, right? Or whatever the, you know, whatever the allotted set of issues are that, you know, whoever funded that grant wanted to have answers to in theory, that should be, you should have those answers at that point. And so there shouldn't really be a reason to need to do major hardware procurements for, you know, uh, something that's sunsetting, right? That's not always the case, right? Because some problems are just really hard or, you know, they may have a different type of scope that's open-ended or whatever, but, you know, typically it's okay for the sunsetting systems to just sort of run until they're done. So let's say there's a case where you do have an opportunity to upgrade an existing HPC system. You, you talked about earlier about you know having to drain the queue. Can you talk a little bit more about what the process is if you're going to actually swap out the infrastructure of one of these things? What has to happen? Oh boy. Um, so essentially, it, let's just let, let's do a for instance, right? So I've got this cluster that's you know that you know however many thousand nodes, and I need to replace the core switch because maybe. The switch that we wanted wasn't available, and we ended up with one level lower than that. And so we're going to go ahead and do an upgrade of the core switch of that. Mm -hmm. um, and this is based on real-world experience, too. <laughs> so, so essentially, you have to schedule out probably at least a month in advance, if not longer. Because some of these jobs are like crazy. They just run a lo very long time, like a crazy long time. And you have to let those jobs all finish. You have to make sure 
that no one is allowed to add new jobs, mm-hmm. which sometimes they just do it. <laughs> and then, you know, you know, if they forget to put a block on adding new jobs, sometimes they just happen. So once all of those jobs are completed, in theory, the queue is drained, but you go ahead and make sure that there's no jobs running on there. And then you have a very finite amount of time that you can have it down for. And then you just do a forklift upgrade like you would any other piece of equipment. It's not terribly dissimilar from, you know, say, replacing a, a, a backbone router node in Chicago or something, right? It reminds me of uh, doing a load balancer upgrade where you're looking at all the traffic flowing through that load balancer, bleeding down all the pool members that it's feeding so that you can get traffic off of that thing, Uh, right? And then shutting down. So it's like, okay, whoever's up is up. When they're done and their sessions are done, nobody else comes in, you know, disabling the VIP and then finally going, all right, everybody's off. That's going to be off. Let's now we can take this thing down and, and do the upgrade. And then, and right, you got a very finite window. Okay, now that everybody's off, we've got two hours to do whatever it is we're trying to get done. Yeah, that's pretty much, that is an incredibly appropriate analogy. It's functionally the same thing. I mean, you may have to take a little bit more care to make sure that like there's not remote file systems mounted, which is a another thing that's kind of unique to some of these HPC systems. Like say I've got a 2000 node cluster, every one of those nodes probably has a public IP address. Right, because they may need to do parallel file system mount of some GPFS file system at another university, right? And you can't do that from one node. You need to do a parallel mount. And there's specific file systems that are not necessarily common that are used in the HPC world for a variety of different reasons that perform these tasks better than others. I think uh, Luster is one. GPFS is one. There's there's a couple of them. I, like I, like I said earlier, I don't. I typically try to stay away from the storage side of things. But you've got this huge set of nodes that could potentially be mounting remote file systems. That if you try to pull the network out from underneath them, you may be doing a full cluster reload at that point. You've talked about a lot of things that are a little unusual about uh, these HPC environments. Is there anything else that you would identify as weird that if you're working on HPC infrastructure, it's just strange and someone would go, coming from traditional infrastructure, go, oh, I hadn't expected that. Oh, yeah. There's no firewalls. <laughs> really? No, man. There's no, there's, there's, there's no crying in baseball, man. <laughs> there's no firewalls. There's no security appliances that impede the data transfer. Which doesn't mean no security. It just means file transfer and moving data sets around is primary. If transiting a firewall will become a bottleneck, then that's, that's a non-starter and you're going to do security some other way? Yep. So I can talk ad nauseum about this. I've done written papers and, and done presentations on why you don't actually need a firewall for years. And, that, and all of that comes from my experience running pretty much wide open networks for the entirety of my career. You know, service provider network's not going to have firewalls in it. HPC network's not going to have firewalls in it because it can't, right? And so the reasons for that are, like you said, you know, you want to be able to move around these huge data sets and your security appliances, one, they're going to be way behind whatever current networking interface speeds are in speeds. In performance, they're going to cut that whatever their interface speed is probably in half, especially if you turn on things like deep packet inspection, that's going to just destroy performance altogether. Now there are a couple of, there are a couple of notable exceptions that will work in smaller HPC environments in my experience, but those are all, they're all really new, but so you have to do all of your security in a different way, right? So security is paramount in a, in a large prefix. Say you've got a slash 19 and all of it is cluster nodes and they're all public you have to make sure that every one of those is monitored just like it's an infant you have to keep your eyes on it all the time and so there are ways to do all of these things without actually being in line and also still be able to do things like idp style filtering like almost real-time black hole routing or filtering can also still happen it just there's no physical appliance in between the resource and the rest of the world. Oh, this feels like a whole other show. You, you, you're, like, you're killing me right now. It's like, I want, like, <laughs> oh, you got another hour to talk? 
Oh, I could talk about this forever. So maybe we got to do a follow-up show, Nick, and just talk about uh, security without firewalls and just talk about some of the infrastructures that you've built and maybe some of the papers that you've written that discuss just what that looks like. That seems like that would be a lot of fun. I would like that a lot. I'll send you a link to a YouTube video of a talk I gave at uh, – have you ever heard of the, the Bro IDS? Yes, certainly have. Mm-hmm. So I, you know, I've been working on Bro since like 2002. So that was born in HPC land. Uh, for the most part, came out of UC Berkeley. Vern Paxson wrote that as his like his PhD project or something. NCSA has been heavily involved in the development of Bro, especially for the past you know ten years or whatever. It's been battle hardened in things like Signet and you know the TerraGrid networks and and very large, very fast, very abusive traffic style networks for a long time. And I gave a talk at one of the conferences about basically running an open perimeter network. Mm. So I'll send you a link to that and you can, if you want, you can watch it or put it in the show notes. Or yeah, whatever. We'll, we'll definitely uh, put it in the show notes. If you send those along, that'll be great. And, uh, and, and you listening can find those show notes at packetpushers.net. So Nick, are you uh, active on social media where people can follow you? Do you blog? Anything you'd like to share with folks? Yeah, I have a blog that I've been meaning to get back to. I wrote something like last month, but it's uh, forwardingplane.net. And there's really no reason to rhyme to what's on it. Just whatever I happen to be working on at the time. And there's a, it's very, very much full of opinion. So okay. be, be aware. <laughs> uh, I also have a Twitter account that is uh, just at Baralio, and I have you know all the all the regular places. Great. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Nick. And uh, to you listening, congratulations! You have upgraded your cerebrum with yet another fine episode of the Data Knots podcast. If you'd like to tell us everything we're getting right or wrong, ask us questions because we do do AMA shows once in a while. Or if you'd like to share your private keys, hey, I am at EC Banks on Twitter, and I write at PacketPushers.net. Uh, Drew Conray Murray has been with us. You can find him at PackaPushers.net as well and all over Twitter. And Chris Wall will be back next week. In the meantime, check out his blog at wallnetwork.com and send him some Twitter love at Chris Wall. For more of our Data Not shows about infrastructure engineering, cannonball into the pool that is PacketPushers.net. There in the deep end, you'll find the Data Knots talking about managing ephemeral infrastructure, full stack engineering, erasure coding, Azure stack, application latency and multi-cloud environments, migrating your mail to software as a service, and so much more. You get the idea. Until then, may your server lights blink, your compute be highly performant, and your cables be cleanly managed. Thank you.